0: Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm Rose McNulty, Managing Editor at the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Carecast, Dr. Raymond Thertullian, Director of Multiple Myeloma and Plasma Cell Disorders at Novant Health Cancer Institute, and Dr. Joseph McHale, Chief Medical Officer at the International Myeloma Foundation, discuss impactful abstracts out of ASH 2023 through a health equity lens. Their conversation touches on topics including racial disparities in time-to-multiple-myeloma diagnosis and treatment, gaps in access to cytogenetic testing and novel therapies, the importance of representation in clinical trials, and the implications of practice-changing abstracts from ASH 2023.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Raymond Fertullian. I am the Director of Multiple Myeloma and Plasma Cell Disorders at Novant Health Cancer Institute in Charlotte. And I'm joined here on this podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care by Dr. Joseph Michael. He is the Chief Medical Officer of the International Myeloma Foundation among the many other hats that he wears uh, in the academic world. And we are here to actually discuss some of the most impactful abstracts in multiple myeloma that we think were presented at ASH this year, ASH 2023. And we're going to discuss those abstracts in the context of how they are related to a subject that is very close to our hearts, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Joe. I'm very glad that we're doing this together. So,
2: uh, please. I feel the same way my friend. I I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. You know, this was such an extraordinary year at Ash in general. We had nearly 8,000 abstracts in total at Ash, which was the highest number we've ever seen. I know I have the privilege of playing of, of playing a role on the executive at Ash and and it's interesting that the fastest growing area of abstracts is myeloma. And then even within myeloma, we see that there has been a much greater interest in the area that we're discussing today in health equity. So I I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about it and even more so to do it with you, my friend.
1: Yes, and and I I totally agree with you because even there was a session dedicated to that uh, topic at ASH. The only issues that I saw is that it was competing with other myeloma sessions. So therefore it wasn't as well attended as we would have liked it to be, right? Uh, so always hopefully next year yeah.
2: it would be it would be a standalone uh, session. Absolutely, that's always a challenge we have. I I, I even joked with the secretary uh, of Ash, and she said to me, "You myeloma doctors are just doing too much good work. We we have to we have to have them competing because there just aren't enough times in the day for all the abstracts that to be presented by uh, by myeloma physicians and and teams." But but I agree with you. It, it was very there is such an interest in myeloma in general, but particularly. In this, And and you and I know this, Raymond, and for our crowd, that one of the reasons why there's such an interest is of all the cancers, solid tumor, liquid tumor, I can argue that myeloma is the most disparate uh, within the African-American community in that a black man or a black woman diagnosed with myeloma today is expected to live half as long as a white man or a white woman with myeloma of the same age. And that disparity is unacceptable and why we work so hard to overcome it.
1: I completely agree. And and I, I must uh, congratulate you on that on that paper that you published in the uh, Clinical Lymphoma, Myeloma, and Leukemia uh, on the overall survival of patients in multiple myeloma. We may have to touch on that as well during this podcast because I think it's going to be relevant when we start talking about the abstracts that were presented at, at ASH. So there are a lot of things to unpack here. Uh, I'm going to start with what I thought was one of the most provocative abstracts at ASH, and I don't think it received enough attention. And, and I don't know if you're gonna agree with me. To me, it was the abstract presented by Jeff Zonder. It was the, the analysis, a reanalysis, a subgroup analysis of the determination trial that looked at the outcome between among African-Americans versus white patients that were enrolled on the determination trial. Obviously, to me, it was provocative. It's not practice changing, but for this space that we live in, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, I thought it had, to me, a lot of impact. I can use it to talk to my colleagues and, and help them understand why it is so important, even you said it's a small part. Why is it so important for us to enroll black patients in in, in in clinical trials? Because the outcome may not be the same. We may be dealing with a different disease altogether, whether it's the disease characteristics, whether it's the patients themselves, whether it's something in the environment, we don't know, but I thought that was impactful. So what, what's your opinion on that one?
2: Well, oh, I, I completely agree with you. In, in fact, you may remember when determination was first presented. So for our crowd, you know, this was the study that compared giving VRD plus transplant to just VRD alone with a deferred transplant. Um, and um, when it was presented, it was the plenary at ASCO last year, 2022. I had the privilege of being the discussant. And in my context of the discussant, I used a case of an African-American patient of mine who comes and asks, should I have a transplant or not? Because even then, the early indication was that um, although we've known historically when African-Americans have access to the same diagnostic and therapeutic strategy as white Americans, that their outcomes should be better, which to me deepens that disparity I shared earlier that the outcomes now are so poor, has a lot to do with delayed diagnosis and access. It was fascinating that even the preliminary results seemed to indicate that maybe transplant was not as effective in African-American patients. So I agree with you that this is a very hot topic, um, not only because of the potential lack of benefit in this population, but very importantly that you said so beautifully, which is, if I am going to see a clinical trial and apply it to my patient in the clinic... Do I really know this applies to my patient if the clinical trial did not capture the diversity of our population? And, and this isn't just a small segment of the myeloma population. We anticipate that roughly 20% of all patients in this country are of African-American descent with multiple myeloma because the incidence is twice as high. So, so to see clinical trials historically where 2 3% of people were African-American, can I really know that those treatments are both effective and safe in my African-American patient I don't know. Thankfully, determination is now setting a bar by having nearly 20% of the patients on the study of African descent that now reflects that reality. So these are the kinds of studies that are powered if you will, even though the statisticians will be upset when I use the word powered, but but you know that they're designed to be so inclusive that we can start saying, okay, do we see differences? And and not to get us off topic, remember my last comment about this is that We're starting to see this already even beyond transplant, but in the CAR-T, in the biospecific world, where we're starting to see that there are differences in the incidence of cytokine release syndrome, in the severity of that, in the need for hospitalization, in Hispanic American patients, in African American patients, and in white patients, there are differences. And so this becomes really important, not just from an efficacy standpoint, but also from a safety standpoint. So I'm I'm really glad that you raised it. I agree with you. I would say that was right at the top of my interest in abstracts related to health equity and myeloma. ASH this year?
1: So to be clear, um, I I want our audience to understand that we are not, this is a provocative abstract. This is a provocative uh, statistical subgroup analysis. It does not mean that you should not offer transplant to your African-American patients who have a BMI greater than 30, right? Um, This is not standard of care. The standard of care is patients who are transplant eligible at least should be offered a transplant. But at least I thought that this abstract certainly would, would give us pause in the sense that when we are, as you mentioned, when we are offering treatment, we want to make sure that our patients uh, were enrolled on the trials and the database that we're using to make those uh, recommendations actually included those patients that we are seeing in our clinic. I totally agree.
2: Absolutely.
1: Now, this, this is a topic that I know you know very well. Let's talk about how, I mean, the, the time to diagnosis of African-American black and brown patients, the time to treatment and whether those patients get the proper diagnostic workup, because we know how important that is in helping us determine how we treat patients. So tell us a little bit about what you know, because there was this this abstract published demonstrating, at, at ASH, in fact, demonstrating that perhaps some patients, and particularly African-American patients, are not getting the cytogenetic studies that we, who work in big centers, take for granted. And we know how important those studies are and how, how prognostic they are in how we treat patients. So t- tell us a little bit
2: about how you actually interpreted those data. Yeah, no, well, thank you, Raymond. And, and And I was really glad that, it's sad to see this, but I'm really glad that this topic is being raised in abstracts like this because in a sense, it's the tip of the iceberg. The full iceberg is, as you beautifully said, the delayed diagnosis. So if someone came to me today and said, Dr. Joe, why is there such a disparity within the African-American community? Why is it that you tell me that there are patients who live half as long, a Black patients who live half as long as a white patient with myeloma? In uber simple ways, I narrow it down to three major topics. One is the systemic issues within our country that affect not just myeloma, but affect all diseases, whether it is systemic racism, the healthcare system, the social determinants of health. We can't bury our heads in the sand and ignore that. But major bucket number two that is myeloma related is delayed diagnosis. And major bucket number three is access to therapies. And I often uh, uh, say access to therapies are the four T's, triplets, transplants, trials, and CAR-T. Those four things have heavily influenced survival in myeloma, and they've all been uh, demonstrated to have reduced access within the African-American community. Highlighting that second one that you've noted, the delayed diagnosis, this goes right back to making the diagnosis of myeloma or even suspecting the the myeloma diagnosis. This has to do with the fact that African-American and Hispanic American patients are diagnosed at a younger age. So we as doctors sometimes don't even think of myeloma in that 50-year-old patient who has proteinuria or who has anemia or has renal insufficiency, not to mention the confounding diagnoses of things like diabetes, which is much more common in this population as well. But even if so, that, that's the sort of phase one. Phase two is that even if someone suspects someone to have myeloma, we've learned there was an abstract actually at last year's ASH meeting showing that an African-American patient is going to have a longer wait to get to their bone marrow biopsy um, than someone who is not African-American. And so so even just getting the testing is is the second part of it and there's that's part of the delayed uh, approach and then finally that this abstract highlights is even when the basic testing gets done it's not comprehensive very often the cytogenetics are not done, the fish testing is not done. Those tests that we need to do to distinguish high risk versus standard risk myeloma, because you and I know in a pure myeloma world, there was a lot of great abstracts this year about how we approach high risk versus standard risk myeloma. So so it's, it's part of that continuum. We're not doing the right testing in patients. We're not suspecting it and getting the diagnosis done on time. We're not getting them quickly to, to have their diagnostic tests. And even when we're doing the test, they're not necessarily complete. We showed in a paper that I wrote last year, uh, Raymond, that even the documentation in the charts around high-risk status is not completely done in uh, a- African-American patients when compared to white American patients. So, So this is, I think, a very important topic. And hopefully allows us to see that we need to address this more comprehensively. So I I think this put into context the the, the paper that you just published on
1: the overall survival of patients in multiple myeloma, demonstrating in fact that, you know, uh, uh, black patients who are treated appropriately with, with, uh, um, although you did it, uh, you, you weren't able to look at the specific regimens that were used, but the outcomes were actually very good when those patients were treated appropriately. Uh, when compared to the
2: outcome of black patients versus white patients. So what we did was we tried, we did a systematic review in contrast to, let's say, the VA study that I demonstrated. Because, you know, if we look at larger, you know, SEER databases and so on over time, that, or, or if we just look at pure mortality, we see such a huge disparity. But what we wanted to do is look very systematically to say, okay, what if people do get the right treatment? So we looked at, 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 you know the studies that were published when African American patients were included in the studies, and we could compare the outcomes between uh, uh, race and ethnicities. And, and like you beautifully pointed out, uh, patients did do well. African American patients did just as well when given those therapies. So it, it, it further consolidates the point that that we've been making, which is this is not a disease that is more aggressive within the African American community, but this is a disease that sadly we are seeing. Less access to care, less access to the diagnostic strategy that you commented on earlier, and now on access to care. And no surprise, when people are given the right therapies, they're going to do better. And so we now need this for our modern therapies. You know, in the first round of CAR T trials, African-American patients represented one and a half percent of patients on CAR-T trials. Thankfully, that number is going up considerably now. But it's a reminder that this isn't just a historical phenomenon, Raymond, right? This isn't people go back and say, oh, Dr. Joe's talking about this again. You know, we're, we're not going back, of course, to the terrible days of Tuskegee and other things. And that we understand that this is still a modern challenge that we need to address.
1: I I, I absolutely agree. And, and we actually do not know how I mean, obviously, we are now gathering the data in terms of treatment of African-Americans and black and brown patients with CAR-T and even by specifics, but they weren't very well represented in those trials. So now we're going to have to gather the data, go back to real-world analysis to figure out whether these African-American patients are going to be doing as well with CAR-T. And as you mentioned at the beginning, that there is a differential in terms of toxicity. And do we know? whether there is such differential in terms of efficacy. And I think the numbers are very small. We don't know what to expect. Uh, We don't know how that's going to go. And to to even broaden the discussion, what are we going to do to be able to actually enroll those African-American patients in those trials with CAR-T? This is a subject that I think you and I, we have approached before. So what are your your ideas in, in that regard?
2: Absolutely! Thank you so much for saying that. Because you're right, we 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 need the numbers to know. You know, I mean, there have been nice consortia, Moffat led, Lauren Prez from Moffitt led, uh, a very important study presented at Ash last year, now published, starting to note differences between groups, but the numbers weren't big enough, as you say, to show statistical significance. So when we think of diversity in clinical trials, sometimes people immediately say, "Well." We just have to set, you know, a, a, a bar and say the trial must include this number of people. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. And our friends like uh, uh, Raymond Burrahey from uh, Indianapolis has set very high standards for us to, to the, what he calls the DRIVE program, where we really have to think about this in a much greater way. And I absolutely agree with him. And of course, I could give you a long lecture on it, but the short version is that it begins with community engagement it begins with building rebuilding trust within the community for the individual practitioner and for the institutions that we not just say you know how do we attract more people to our trial we need to build trust this this concept where people only come to us when they're sick is not appropriate. We need to be going out into the community. As you know, in my work at the International Myeloma Foundation with the program that you've helped us with, the Empower program, where we empower patients and communities to change the course of myeloma, this is what we've sought to do, to engage the community. Secondly, to educate the primary care world about the earlier uh, diagnosis, but then engaging uh, um, our our healthcare professionals as well in their day-to-day practice to say, am I practicing in such a way that is really going to ensure that I am inclusive in my clinical trials? Do I have a culturally sensitive approach? Does my team reflect the diversity? Does the clinical trial itself facilitate transportation and other features that we know can uh, lead to disadvantaged populations not coming onto trial? And frankly, do the clinical trial materials reflect that diversity, right? And and so as some of these things are done, I, I even agree, uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Burrahe has suggested that for all of these trials, we need a diversity officer, not to add a layer of, of administration per se. Or but complexity. To, to, yeah, or complexity, but to look at a trial and say, is this, a, is this appropriate, right? And what can we do? And so now cancer centers especially because the NCI is designating it, at least the NCI designated cancer centers, they're demanding that we have better community outreach and better strategies for diversity in clinical trials. And now, of course, the FDA wants to see it. I can see a day, Raymond, where trials are gonna be so important to have that inclusivity that drugs won't get approved unless it is reflecting the diversity of that population. So I'm thankful that there's a great interest. The solutions are complex. But with the right commitment, I think it's doable.
1: And it seems to me, though, uh, also that the major myeloma organizations, and obviously the IMF has been at the forefront of working on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it, it sounds to me that the MMRF also is putting a program together on on diversity, and they have nominated uh, someone to become their diversity authors to overlook their trials and make sure that they're doing the right thing in terms of uh, including enrolling African American uh, patients on clinical trial, but also hopefully how we approach treatment of African American with uh, multiple myeloma. I'm going to shift a little bit because there are there are a lot of uh, abstract that were presented uh, at ASH that I think are practice changing, and I don't know how necessarily they're going to apply to this subject at hand, which is uh, DEI, but. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Persius trial. Believe it or not, Joe, I'm still debating Griffin with people. Right? When I looked at Griffin, I always point out that the the, the endpoints one and two, the fact that patients with two or more high-risk genetics did not do as well in in Griffin, and then here comes Persius. I mean, they did. They have not done this analysis yet in Persius. We haven't seen the data, right? The, the 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 paper that's published in the New England. It doesn't have those subgroup analyses yet. So we'll be waiting for some more papers. So how do you think this will apply in how we treat multiple myeloma in in the United States?
2: So, so of course, you ask a great question, uh, Raymond. I mean, I think... Perseus was arguably the most talked about abstract at uh, ASH this year in myeloma, where uh, Dara VRD or DERA bortezomib lenalidomide dex was compared to, to VRD. And I think the results were impressive for most uh, of us, you know, uh, over 15% improvement of progression-free survival at four years, you know, not still not reached for both arms at four years. Um, and i s- still, still have some questions around the consolidation and the maintenance piece. But I think this taken in addition to the other, uh, abstract in the plenary, the Ischia trial, where we used esotuximab plus KRD versus KRD that now we have, I think a pretty clear sense that quads are the way to go in the future. And I agree with you that there are people who are still a little bit hesitant, but in in my estimation, in answer to your question about the high risk status is I think it's not so much that quads aren't better than triplets for that Uber high risk is that those patients with Uber high risk, as I call it or ultra high risk with two or more cytogenic abnormalities They may need a totally different strategy. We may need to introduce more immunotherapies up front. And in light of our previous discussion, it is more important than ever to ensure that we're inclusive in our trials so that we know if we are going to make a bit of a tidal shift in certain patients, like the ultra high-risk patients, where you now we're doing clinical trials using CAR-T upfront instead of transplant, and both of these studies, of course, use transplant, then we need to ensure that we're more inclusive. But I think the take-home message for today's cl- clinic is that we're going to be using quads uh, for transplant-eligible patients. And although it's beyond our scope today, we saw the initial re- uh, uh, press release from IMROZ, which was esotoximab plus VRD versus VRD in transplant ineligible, that we may likely be using quads in all frontline patients, or at least those who we think can handle uh, a quad together. I, I
1: totally agree. And I told people that came out of ASH thinking that, yes, these were practice-changing uh, abstracts presented at ASH. And clearly, I think that quads is probably the way to go for all patients, particularly if we agree that MRT negativity could or should be uh, one of those endpoints that we yes. should be looking at, given that we're not going to see overall survival in first-line therapy in multiple myeloma. If, if somebody shows me a trial that shows uh, uh, first-line therapy overall survival benefit, I would say hogwash because... We have so many uh, 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 rescue regimens in second, third, fourth line that it would be very, very challenging to show that. And in fact, uh, Pete Voorhees, I think, made a great point presenting the abstract, the ischia abstract, in fact, at the plenary session. Even progression-free survival may become very challenging to show in early line therapy for those for those regimens. And obviously, the issue is, should we be using MRT negativity as an endpoint Although the FDA has not given us the green light yet for that in our in our clinical trials, so this is we have a lot of things going on in uh, multiple myeloma, and I, I totally agree that that quads uh, seems to be the way that we, we're going for all patients, whether you have standard risk and, and high risk, and I su- I suspect that should be a point of education. When we are also seeing those African-American patients, we've gone from singlets to doublets. We know these should not be offered to to patients and certainly not to uh, African-American patients. And I think that's still an issue in in our country. And we've gone to triplets and we know that African-American patients are not being offered triplets or are not being offered, uh, you know, the the new regimens. And now we have on our hands a, a new challenge to educate our myeloma colleagues to actually offer quadruplets to patient, and that has a lot of implications, including financial implications. So what, what's your take on that, part?
2: No, I completely agree with you. It is going to be a huge hurdle. Um, but at the same time, as I often say, even from a financial standpoint, uh, relapse is very expensive in myeloma. And so if we can use the right combinations, and I think that's why there's still a few unanswered questions about how long do you continue the quadruplet? As you know, I've been a big advocate of what I call down with decks, you know, that we turn down the decks. And I think as we apply it to patients in the clinic, the pragmatic, And that's why it was so nice to see at ash this year so much emphasis on real world versus clinical trial data the pragmatic use of these drugs how do i dose the lenalidomide for how long do i give it when can i turn down the bortezomib those kinds of things i think are going to help making this feasible uh but we have to we have to address this i mean we had this challenge as you remember in the lymphoma world when we went from chop to our chop you know and it, it became challenging to say oh this could be a much more expensive regimen but ultimately what we know is best for the patient to prolong their their overall progression and overall survival is going to be really important. And in those populations where the financial burden of cancer care has been greater to bear, it more than ever uh, requires us to ensure that we look at those issues of health coverage of the oral parity laws to ensure that people don't just have access to intravenous chemotherapy or subcutaneous chemotherapy, that they have access to oral therapy as well.
1: Well, there is so much more that we could be talking about. I think we need to commit ourselves to to more podcasts. Uh, I know you have uh, commitments and uh, you have to go back to that lab meeting. And uh, I have some commitments myself. I thank you very much for participating in this podcast with me. As I said, maybe we'll do this again and we'll have so many more topics to discuss. And hopefully uh, we will educate some of our colleagues on the issues that we hold dear to our heart. And we will eventually achieve true diversity, equity, and inclusion in how we do research in multiple myeloma, and more importantly, how we treat uh, our patients and African-American patients uh, with multiple myeloma. And we have achieving the ultimate goal, right, which is parity in outcomes. Certainly, uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us.
2: Well, thank you so much, my friend. Always a pleasure, always a pleasure to be with you and to address these really important topics. So thank you again for including me. Thank you
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Managed Carecast. For more updates on managed care, including coverage of ASH and other meetings, visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.